Criminal Magic. Chapter 23. Tuesday, 12.15, GMT-8. It is not in the stars to hold our destiny, but in ourselves. Rust pools and stretches out, corroding its way into virgin territory as oxidation eats the narrow shoulder of the railway, one microscopic bite at a time. Aramichi Mikio glances up from where he kneels and takes a quick look down the railroad tracks, east and west. Nobody in sight. He returns his attention to the miniature world of corrosion, ferrous oxides crystallized in very distinctive ways. They are, after all, obeying the immutable strictures governing their growth. Rather than aggressively projecting their reach, jutting out into the air, they hunch down on themselves, keeping themselves close. The midday light snags on the tiny spars and clots of amber-hued growth as the sun struggles to express itself through mournful wraiths of fog. Ari observes that this corruption of the solid substrate is not so much consumption as it is an aggressive act of conversion, one community appending itself to another, gradually altering the host group's way of being, transforming it, taking it over. His mind reaches for the comparison to be made through this observation. It's his job, after all. He's the rust on a community. With his arrival, there can only be two possibilities, complete conversion or radical removal of the corruption. The second has always remained the more theoretical alternative. He pulls himself away from the intensely close examination, and as he begins to rise, notices that Frost, on the flat rail top, is retreating in the face of a barely visible change in light. Some change is daily and reliable, other is chaotic. He stands, brushes the iron-red clay of the roadbed from his knees, steps onto the rail, and resumes his walk. Balance is key to Aramichi Mikio's understanding of the world. He remembers his 38th birthday, when he discovered rail walking as a means of meditation. He was out with his large red dog, trailing behind as the animals sniffed and ran through the immense wasteland of the Tokyo rail yards. Through the accident of a diverted commute, he discovered that this was one of the few truly open spaces in the city where a person could go and let their dog run free. He had taken to bringing the pup down here, partly to get it out of the unnatural confines of its kennel and partly to get away from the consuming demands of a work life which followed him home from the office with the eagerness of a jealous lover. One evening, tired of watching the dog as it passed under boxcars and scratched at gravel tiles and stirred to the well-hidden mouse or rat, Ari had begun to divert himself by making an effort to walk on the rails. From the moment he stepped onto the slick narrows of the endless steel line, he was captivated. Here there was a world of balance which demanded his full attention. While walking the rails, he found that all of the meaningless substance of his work life, the suffocating debris of trivialities which constantly vied for dominion over the open architecture of his mind, were swept away. For this reason alone, he began to walk the rails every day. No matter where he traveled in the world, he would consult transit maps before his trip, so there'd be no confusion as to where the nearest rail line was in relation to his dwelling. He made the ritual of rail walking a central part of life's daily routine. Ari attaches enormous significance to his simple walks. The elemental act of maintaining actual balance for long periods of time gives him a clear sense of the core importance of working from just such a perspective. Focus is another immediate benefit. Every walk forces him to maintain a tight focus on a specific objective. For instance, when he first started, he could only maintain his balance if he was able to concentrate on every individual footfall as it approached. Now, he can run hundreds of meters on the rails without falling. The railroad's history, their relation to movement of goods, their mechanical layouts and structural formulae are also convenient platforms from which Ari draws other object lessons. As he arrives in each new place and strives to understand the history of that socio-geographic location, the railroads are central to his initial grasp of the site, the people, the politics. 
transport, industry, the rise of population and wealth, permanence and impermanence, all attach to the history of rail commerce in such places. Ari stops, balancing on one foot, to examine the greasy splotch of a stain that splashes across the rail every place it comes in contact with a certain type of weed. This must be creosote. He bends to brush a brown stalk between his fingertips and rises again, careful not to become unsteady in the process. He raises his hand to his nose, but the smell is wrong. He fixes the plant's characteristics in his mind, noting that the presence of so many uncrushed weeds tells how infrequently this spur is used. In Portland, a city whose transit system has long ago fallen into disrepair, whose entire infrastructure suffers under the corrosive cruelty of a forever winter dampness, balance will be hard to find. The Association of Business Government Associations realizes that the emergence of a social and political trend flowing from the Newtown phenomenon are distilling along the riverbanks here at a faster rate than in any other location, with the possible exception of Sao Paulo or Odessa. Of course, local history, the occurrences in the South, are at the heart of this particular outcome, but there are other factors that this place shares with the sister relief valve developments. Cause, after all, is not all there is to know. Effect has its own province. Relating these elements, recognizing patterns, drawing conclusions to support action, that's Ari's job. He's here to establish permanent corporate development rights along the once-abandoned brownfields that run the course of the river, beside the path of what was Waterfront Park, and on the east side of the river, too. And that means conflict. And conflict means opportunity. Tuesday, 12-16, GMT-8. Answer is immersed in a vision. He stands at the head of a bed, his hand on the forehead of a sick man. The man's a stranger whose face is indistinct. He bends to get a closer look. The features unclear, murky, as though he's seeing them through a filter. He rises, puzzling over his lack of ability to perceive who he's with. Why am I here? A cramp wrenches his intestines as soon as he turns away from the face. He returns his attention fully to the naked man lying before him, and the sense of calm settles back. Now it's becoming clearer, if clear is a measure for this sense of seeing through things. Features sweep across the deathly still face of the man lying beneath his hand like topographical details without attachment to a specific geographic location. Faces, uncountable faces, details of rights and customs, the labors of men and women, flesh, food, water, all manner of human detail. Weather, disaster, disease, death, blood, rivers of blood, fear. The slithering wet of the so and the unso, the real and the imagined, all of these things push onto the quiet, bloodless face, lying there beneath the pulsing palm of answers covering hands. Emotions, the fierce gasp of regret, lust, hate, empty memorials to greed and terror. Answers tranquil beyond any will of his own, the volume of input so far exceeding his capacity to understand and interpret does nothing to ruffle his soft expression. And beneath his anesthetically enforced mask of stoicism, Nuntahich, warrior hand of the Cayman, is in a panic. He has been awakened to the unwelcome reality of the jaguar's presence. Timeless animosities, fears whose origins are long forgotten, jar his every neuron to alertness. The drive to destroy the jaguar is so profoundly embedded in his genetic makeup that it lives even when all other details of himself or his group are gone. Nuntahitch strives to rise up from the depths of his practical death and strike down the enemy. His nerves, his muscles thrill under the whip of instinctive demands for retribution. For answer, there's no such sense of impending danger. Nothing here can reach out and capture or absorb him. For a moment, he considers lifting his hand, allowing for something to take place, but what? 
for the mouth of the living dead here at hand to open, for this one creature's throat to act as an escape valve for, for something. All the while, in the deeper layers, constants make repeated appearances. Answer understands that the foreground, the pantheon of extravagant excess that seems to include all things imaginable, is no more than the spattered distraction of passing events painted on the face by their ferrymen. These are merely the images on the surface, but the reality, the canvas, holds the truth. This knowledge permits Answer to delve beyond the turbulent surface glut of mass memory and move toward the constant of background that constitutes a static, true thing down, or perhaps to the side or up, Answer moves, sidestepping the bramble of attention-grabbing trivia until he finds himself standing on a stone lintel overlooking a parade ground. On the anvil of this place, three men stand together, their backs turned. He is in flight, swooping down on them from a height, circling, sweeping past. He turns to look at them. One is a man with the face of a crocodile. Another wears the identity of a man he has seen in several incarnations. This is still the leader of the Cayman clan, and the third is the face of Kohler, the most recent incarnation of Still. Luz was right. What to do now? Answer touches down and walks just past the three, noting idly that his position should be impossible in real space. This idea, while amusing, slips by yet another distraction. Turning to face Still and Kohler, Answer lifts one hand and grips Kohler by the throat. He lifts him off the ground slightly, effortlessly, and pulls his face close. He can almost feel the breath. Still and Cayman don't move, or even acknowledge the presence of their mortal enemy in this vision. Where have you been? Answer asks Kohler, simply looking back and forth. Kohler, nonplussed, stares right through him. There is clearly some resistance left, but Answer sees something unusual in his eyes, and he looks closer, remembering a phrase his mother would sometimes use. He says it out loud, with a slight growl that comes from somewhere outside himself. Windows to the soul, Rafe. You know they're the windows to the soul. The look on Kohler's face changes from passive and defiant to stricken, and suddenly, Answer can see movement inside those eyes, representations of reality in his pupils like tiny sculpted dioramas. But these are the real thing. There's no doubt. Ah, Answer purrs to himself. Cayman has a real problem now. His gaze sweeps down through Kohler's eyes on a precise miniature of the lab complex from Dana's visions. Kohler must have approached many times just this way, jump cab or copter, breezing in with the feeling of omnipotence that comes innately from the perspective of overflight. As the view narrows towards ground, Answer can detect a sign in perfect definition by the side of a rutted dirt road, Skagit County Line. Answer feels his face contract unwillingly into a feral grin, and he lets out an inhuman cry that shatters the others in the vision into motes and blows them softly, harmlessly, off into the sky. Tuesday, 1445, GMT-8 Aramichi is fascinated by cycles. 500 years ago, this land was the heart and soul of a nomadic culture, a boundlessly fruitful source of food, transport, and water. Less than 300 years back, the same terrain was reimagined as a corridor for the logging trade. Then, for a brief time, the waterfront and the river upon which it verged were essential to shipping and all sorts of other regional produce and commerce. That was when it began to become little more than a glorified sewer. At some point, usually where technology and industrial obsolescence converge, the utility and value of waterfront properties becomes questionable. If rivers are not useful for transport or waste disposal, what good are they? As with all things in history, that question had redefined itself once more, 
What good are people without rivers? Potable water, as it turns out, is the only really valuable commodity on Earth, and those that control access to and use of its frontage are de facto masters of the universe. This is not a recent discovery, merely a revisitation of facts established 40,000 years ago, but still forgotten from time to time. For this reason, the reassessment of value, all the new towns that have sprung up in place of the industrial blight that used to occupy countless miles of shoreline, are fast becoming a large-scale political headache for Hindu groups of all dimensions in many nations. The directors of this Hindu group think Ari may be the cure for their pain. The real job is to rebalance the situation. To say his work is to restore balance would be going too far. After all, the Hindu idea of balance does not fit any historical norms, so there's no basis from which to excuse their campaign on restoration. Unfortunate. It always is useful to be able to claim the rightness of heritage to your side of a question. Bringing anyone's understanding of balance to this chaotic welter of a place looks like it will be messy. He sets foot on the rails that cross the Willamette at the steel bridge. This is a historically interesting anomaly, a bridge dedicated to supporting two functions at once, Cars and trains used to pass one atop the other here, an unusual accommodation since competitors rarely travel together. Very few trains head west out of the ramshackle remnants of Union Station anymore, and the bridge itself, the collected millions of hand-forged rivets and furnace-cast beams, is corroding at such a rate that it's already useless for anything but foot traffic. He begins the last piece of his walk back toward the west side of the river. In another thousand meters, I'll be out of this artificial narrows and back on the broader right-of-way, Ari thinks idly. A thousand meters after that, I'll be back at work, surrounded by many parties who will put demands on my time. Ari's employers envision his work as one essential aspect of the overall business strategy. They've given him the title of strategic asset manager, a simple-minded means of conveying a process he himself is barely competent to understand. Ari's job is to come to a place and dissect what makes the opposition work. He's adept at understanding the mind of others, getting inside their theoretical heads. During college, he became famous for beginning a debate with one premise and winning the debate by wholly co-opting the reasoned position of the other party. They called him the rapper. To his mind, it was just obvious. He thought of it as an incorporation. Just encompass and absorb what originally appears to oppose you. His real central skill, as far as he is concerned, is his ability to become one with the mind of the opposition and in the end, fully integrate with it. It's not a strategy without risk, but he doesn't focus on that shortcoming, since for him it has always seemed preferable to the conflict-based means of damage employed by the majority of change specialists. One foot slips on a patch of bird dung, Ari's body twists, his arms flail, and he realizes that he cannot recover. But he has a strategy for moments such as these. He twists to his right and leaps up, off the rail. For an instant, suspended above the grounding of track and wooden transom, Ari is free of all concern for balance. Then, both feet at angles, right to the blade of the rail, he lands on the parallel track. Struggles to balance for a moment, pitching forward and back. Then, smoothly swinging his feet to the side, he executes a perfect about-face, which leaves him looking away from his former destination. His mind snaps back to his feet. Begin again. I am here, concerned with nothing more than balance, as it directs itself through me. He stares out along the rails, until forced perspective brings them together at a distant overpass. A faint wrinkle of self-satisfaction smears his face as he starts walking again, backwards. This is one of the two aspects of meditation he has recently begun trying to master, equilibrium in defiance of the reasonable. The other thing, the one he will do tomorrow, is maintaining balance with your eyes closed. A few raindrops splatter onto the stretched sheen of the rail top. He stops, waiting. Sixty seconds pass before he begins moving. The first drops have not been followed by others. 
this phenomenon interests him, precursors often come alone. Tuesday, 1802, GMT-8. How many? Coordinator barks into the sat cell. She takes advantage of the interval between question and answer to take a sip of coffee. Good and strong. She wonders why anyone would drink it any other way. Sickly, sweet, creamy, all basic betrayals of the acidic wonder of the stuff. Twenty, Kieran says, his voice betraying no emotion. Do you think twenty should be useful? Yeah, well, I don't mean to be pushy, Coordinator says, but these folks here have a rather... She trails an index finger in the air. Let's just say the security staff in Newtown doesn't seem very robust. Understood, Kieran replies. That estimate agrees with our own information. The community leadership seems not to have focused so much on policing and physical security issues as one might expect. So it is your opinion a larger specialty crew would be desirable? Send me 40, coordinator says. We don't know exactly how many people are at the lab site, and there aren't any data from the intel answer and the grill generated that tell us what kind of security he's got deployed to protect the place. Based on the ass-whipping they brought to our last encounter, we have to assume it's tight and well-armed. Coordinator, if you could give us a little more time to consider deployment strategies, it's essential that we act with some sensitivity to local conditions. Yeah, she says idly. I'll break back in five. Coordinator feels glum. Sensitivity to local conditions, my ass, she thinks, staring at the ground. That's nothing more than political speak, for we don't want to step on anybody's toes, and how can we pull this off with as little visibility as possible? She tosses off the rest of her coffee and slaps her hands on her knees. Brilliant sun lights the shoal of the city through the window, glinting off glazed facades, but a lowering bank of rain clouds threatens from the west. She shakes her head in disgust. Look at this fucking place. Can't picture a better environment for a little psycho scenario to play out. You don't even need dry ice for effects. The weather itself is already fucking ghoulish. A shiver works its way from between her shoulders out through the top of her head. She rubs the palms of her hands against one another, hoping to generate a spark of warmth. It's not even winter, but if you sit still for a few minutes, it's cold as hell. She imagines that long ago, a tribe of vengeful natives suggested this pneumonia hole as a lovely place for the newly arrived white men to establish their village. The gift that keeps on giving, right? A lot like venereal disease. Still, at least she can feel her energy winding back up again, almost like a physical hit. It's the action. Only the action. She can always feel it coming on. An old boyfriend once accused her of being an addict, and she had never denied it, since from every practical point of view, he was right. It's the main reason, looking back on her career, that she could never have made a decent politico. Interrogation for coordinator never was about coaching the witness on the easy side of a one-way mirror. It had more to do with staring right into the fucker's eyes, up close, personal, looking for that spark of truth or recognition that bubbles up with just the appropriate prodding. The human eye, looked at from the right perspective, is nothing more or less than a big fat pipeline direct into the wetware that runs the whole shebang. Phenographs, polyanalysis, this weird shit they've cooked up and used on that corpse in there? Fuck that, she thinks. Give me a few minutes alone with a live subject? I'll get the answer for you. Every time. A singular scene, like an endlessly repeating movie trailer, winds itself through her head for the who knows how manyth time. Answer standing with his hands on the bald guy's head, a circle of rust-colored metallic light flickers around him. His eyes are closed, his arms are vibrating a little. No one knows what exactly it is he's doing, but you would have to be blind not to see the etheric images swirling around his body like laser-projected cinema. The density of subjects is so great it's hard to distinguish one form from another most of the time. Once in a while, for a flash, the shapes coalesce into formidably recognizable structures. A village full of people, an enormous bonfire, dancers, faces, swarms of unrelated image data float around his leaning figure in a holographic miasma. 
Her eyes ache from lack of sleep. She snaps a strip of jump rope out of its holder and gives her gums a quick going over. This is where the phrase strung out originates. She spits the bitter back end of the stimulant out onto the floor. You'd think by now they would have gotten rid of that taste. Jesus, this whole thing is out of hand. The cell does a little dance in her palm. Tell me, she barks. Avi here. Coordinator, on your request for tactical assistance, we've dispatched 40 aiders from the Philippines, ETA 4 and 20. Bring them in at these coordinates, she says, rattling off numbers that will land the heavily armed aiders at an unused forest service fire station well east of Concrete, Washington. You will be on site to meet them when they arrive? Avi places the question on her plate with the dexterity of a politician, well used to applying pressure with the deft care of someone buttering delicate pastry. Avi, I am the goddamn site. Tell the boys and girls if I'm not there when they arrive, just button the place down and wait. They'll need to be very quiet. This is a rural area and things get noticed easy. I'll have some locals with me. Coordinator, Kieran reinserts himself. Please keep in mind the somewhat sensitive nature of our present situation. The aid you've requested has not been called for by the Newtown leadership, has it? Her silence provides all the answer he needs. So, Kieran goes on, we are presently masking an effort to renegotiate our dealings with Mr. Gray and his associates per our recent conversation. Fortuitously, it appears that some long-range planning had already been dedicated to putting in place assets that could help us advance a strategy similar to the one you suggested. But I caution you, we must not take care to appear too assertive in relation to the community in question. Well, you're a smooth one, Karen, coordinator says, smiling for probably the first time all day. I don't think a girl might ever get asked to dance if she stayed that cool all the time. I'm just speculating, but I'd say when our folks show up at this dust-up we're hatching and start blowing up the bad guys, it seems pretty clear our aims will be exposed. If you're asking me, I'd have to say it seems maybe we ought to make our intentions known to the townies before the shooting starts. It always feels good to have the full consent of your partners when it comes to swinging. Just my opinion. Before Kieran can catch up, the door to the small cafeteria room opens, and Luz walks in. Company, coordinator says, gotta go. We'll stay in touch on the details. Thank whatever it is for small favors. She logs off. Do you know where Answer is? Luz asks as she advances across the room. No idea, coordinator says, shaking her head. Last time I saw him, her collie was on the floor of the dome. Right after Answer did whatever the fuck he was, he did. Luz turns back toward the door, heading into the corridor. She has a hand on the doorknob when coordinator says... Why are you looking for him? Luz turns away from the exit and fixes her attention on the other woman. So much strength and undiluted force. A part of Luz is certainly fascinated with Coordinator. She wants to understand how one with these traits can be so close to the truths of the world. Luz cocks her head slightly to one side and turns, walking back towards Coordinator. I have something he will need, she says. Coordinator shakes her head. Good luck telling him that. He acts like he needs nothing and nobody, she says. Does he even know what the word means? Luz draws her left hand from a discreet pocket hidden in the folds of her flowing skirt and extends her arm until the tips of her delicate fingers touch Coordinator's sternum. It is everything Coordinator can do to contain her discomfort. People do not touch her. Even those like Kieran, who have known her from childhood, are rarely able to embrace her. It's an aversion which has cost her intimate affection of men and women, but she bridles her emotions, subordinating the intuitive violent reaction long enough to see whatever it is in Luz's hand. Cupped in her palm lies the small wad of deerskin coordinator saw Luz retrieve from beneath the dead shaman Ramon's thigh back in the village. Since he has decided to come to this place, our friend will need these things. Luz's words pass between the two women as if she has noticed nothing of the other's discomfort, but Coordinator knows that she has. She sees it in the half-smile afloat on Luz's face, the assured serenity of someone possessed of a certain knowledge of what is true in her immediate surroundings. 
She reaches up and lifts the small packet from Luce's hand. She sniffs it, gently squeezes it, and tosses it slightly to get a feel for its heft before handing it back. Well, she says, whatever the fuck that is, I guess we ought to get after finding our boy Lo-Fi. She shrugs her shoulders. If you say he's gotta have it, well shit, I guess he's gotta have it. Thanks for joining us. Please check back next week for chapter 24 of Criminal Magic. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review to help others find us as well.